Hi, I'm Eve. I'm from the east end of Long Island, New York. Growing up, there was one wild animal I came across constantly, deer. Half of the people want to see them vaporized, the other half won't let you touch a little hair on their head. This is a podcast about deer and people, and how in one unique community, these two species are bound in a web of conflict that has been decades in the making. We know that hunting works. These folks created the problem. It makes me want to cry. It's like, how do we undo this? You got to do anything and everything you can to win this battle. I'm Eve Bishop, and this is Dear Humans. You can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to The Buzz, brought to you by the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and today we're buzzing into episode 95, and uh, I thought you were going to have a different voice. You kind of promised us that the I- last time we, <laughs> we talked. That that was the last the last episode with this voice. and uh, You know, this. I guess today is two weeks since the surgery, and prior to, like, maybe yesterday, I've been pretty congested since then, so I... I sounded – I felt as if I sounded the same, but over the last two days, I feel as if my voice has gotten deeper. And I I won't know until yeah, till we listen to this back. People have but, to write in and let, let us know if you actually do sound different because you sound the same to me. But I think yeah. it would have been really funny if you started out and said, hello and welcome to Native Plants Healthy Planet. This is your host, Fran Chismar. <laughs> welcome to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. <laughs> I'm your host, Fran Chismar. No, I, I don't know. I feel like for the most part, my voice is my voice. It just sounds a little a little on the deeper side. In my opinion, I don't know. Yeah. Like we we had we, we polled everyone in the office today. I, and I think some people thought it sounded a little different. Everyone else thought it sounded the yeah. same. So I don't know. But Sorry we, to disappoint everyone. <laughs> I <laughs> am nose, disappointed. You know, to me, my nose looks a little different. It's a little straighter. Like it didn't change much, but like, because I'm more familiar yeah. with my new, I probably I look at I've my nose either, more but, than anyone. But, but it looks a little different. But we have a big slate for you guys today, um, and we've been starting with uh, a little bit of recap, some stuff that happened in between the last time we talked to now. And uh, the big one that I wanted to bring up is uh, Christine St. George, yes. who wrote in or, or gave us a review. Uh, a couple episodes a, ago, a five star review, one very, of the best reviews I've ever read. One of the um, best things ever written about me or us, well, <laughs> us but like me included like one of the best things but she wrote in and said. it was a really unique idea um i i have to say i we we laughed a little bit about it but it really is pretty in, innovative in a way and she was saying that she uses in place of uh, or as an addition to her soil mix instead of peat moss or some other things because it resembles peat is she has pet rabbits and uses the i guess i'll, I'll call it rabbit manure but yeah I think she termed it as rabbit poop. And if you have that kind of resource at home, I know chickens can can well they have manure. That's something that you can utilize or at least compost and then utilize. They're actually there's a lot of things you can do for your home garden that work really really well. They're actually producing cow fiber. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I think we talked about that on the last Buzz episode mm-hmm. as a peat alternative. But it you know I like we chuckled not 
not because it was silly, just the amount that. Oh yeah, like I was thinking That's of a lot the of amount. Poop. Yeah, it's, it's a like, lot of poop. <laughs> like we we produce, uh, like three million two inch plugs mm-hmm. a year, and uh, like a hundred thousand containers, mm-hmm. if not more. And then let's just say I, I'm just rounding like a half a million tubelings. Like that's a lot of soil that we use and a lot of – like we're talking – like we may use like a couple trailer loads of peat moss. Yeah, at least two. So if you think about the amount of rabbit poop you'd have to generate just for us, let alone an industry. Like I I pictured – like you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, right? Like you know the chicken coop? Like I was thinking that but with rabbits. Yeah. (laughs) Like and it's like we need more poop. (laughs) But you know, and I I think Christine even mentioned in her her email, like if you were to utilize this and upscale it, like it would probably lead to a animal rights issue. Yes, yeah. You know, because the amount of rabbits and the amount they would have to produce would have Mm -hmm. to be immense oh, yeah. like i can't even but for for home gardening man if you have those kind of resources that's a great thing to utilize and instead of well like that's how they used to do it that's yeah that's and uh we've kind of gotten away with it because we have the ability to but um no so that was a good one and there, and at the same time someone in the native plants healthy planet facebook group commented about they were doing the same thing and we had to look to see yeah. if it was the same oh, yeah. person but it wasn't they had questions just about if they were to do it What's the best way to do it? And unfortunately, I'm not an expert on that. I was hoping someone would weigh in, mm-hmm. but I think there was only one comment on the post. Yeah, so. yeah, and I'm not an expert either. But and the other thing, speaking of of nice reviews, is we've gotten a lot of nice reviews, and that's just I'm going to give my little reminder that if you leave us a five star review with a little write up, you're entered into our drawing on our hundredth episode. We're going to announce the winner of a Pylons Nursery Yeti Cup, uh, and yeah, so that's coming up. We're only five yeah. episodes away from that that announcement. <clears throat> I I'm going to apologize if I. If I cough, I do have a cough button that I have to try to remember to hit, but that's still <laughs> post-nasal drip from the surgery. Um, no, I was looking to see on our reviews, we lost a review, which typically means someone is altering a written mm-hmm. – like if they hadn't given a written review, they were adding it or altering it. So I was looking to see if it popped because it disappeared yesterday, mm-hmm. and it hasn't popped up yet. Yeah, so. but it's something – It could be good or bad. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think uh, people always recognize how important those are. Not only to the, the algorithm that Apple Podcasts use to promote our podcast, but also just to us to let us know that we're doing something that's on a, a positive track. You know, and on a different note, because we really haven't – I know we promoted it with the last episode. We really haven't talked about a native plant every day, and mm-hmm. we've gotten some really great five-star reviews. I think we're up to 13 reviews, all five-star, and we've gotten some feedback both via um, – you know, good and constructive via email and also um, through the reviews. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and it is it is heard, it is listened to. It's just very difficult sometimes through a creative process when you're trying to be creative to – I don't know. Like you have a vision, so sometimes yeah. you want to be true to that vision, but you also need to make sure – You need to make sure people like it. Yeah, it's, and it's <laughs> – and sometimes you have – Half like it, half don't, or three mm-hmm. quarters like it and a quarter don't, and it's hard to decide who and what you're going to change for what. Yep. So it's we we do listen to all of it though, and it it's it it definitely sinks in, and we we get it. Yeah. So, so. let's get started. Uh, I guess we already started, but let's get into the next segment, which is featuring the native plants we're vibing with this week, and we call that that's hot. That's hot. Would you like to go first? Or I would can you like go me? first. I feel like it's you know. 
even though we put out one of these every week mm-hmm. because of the surgery, we jammed a whole mess yes. of recording. So we actually haven't done any recording in over two weeks, and I feel completely like lost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that may just be with how I feel right yeah. now. But which uh, so so my plant this week is actually a plant I don't I don't recall ever actually coming in contact with before. Oh, all but right. I, other than social media and um, and it's a post I saw on Instagram. Uh, by a really interesting follow, if you if you're into foraging and and ending the war on weeds, is a, a follow. It's a woman named Jenna Roselle, and I think that's her Instagram handle too. I probably should look that up. But she wrote last week about a plant called uh, balsam poplar, and the the Latin on that is Populus balsamifera. I can't I say think. I'm familiar with this one. And yeah, I, like I said, I'm not either. But I guess now uh, she's in Maine, okay. so and it's right. it's only native to basically the the really higher latitudes in the country. Right. So it's not – I've seen conflicting information. I don't think it's native to New Jersey. I, When you go on a lot of the maps, it doesn't show it being native to New Jersey, but I've seen one or two maps that says it is, okay. all the way down to Virginia. But most maps have it like Massachusetts – Across the country, north. I would listen it's, if it's native to New Jersey. I would imagine it's probably up near the Water Gap in the like yeah. the, the the northwest mountainous area of the the state. Yeah, but uh, and being that it's from uh, this person was from New England, and then the the resource was from New England. I went to Go Botany, which is New England based okay. um, resource, and I pulled their little snippet that they wrote about it to share with you guys, and that's balsam poplar ranges from uh, to the high boreal zone and is distinguished from its relatives by its long, relatively narrow leaves that sometimes bear orange resin on their undersides. The buds exude the same resin from which the tree takes its common name as it is the source of balsam gilead, uh, traditionally used in ointment to relieve chest congestion. This resin is flammable, so the twigs are useful for starting campfires. Beaver also use the twigs for building their lodges. Uh, streaked with brown and gray, the wood is valued for carving and other uses. Um, again, that's from Go Botany. That's very cool. And why I was became I don't I don't want to say familiar, but where this, like I said on Instagram, I saw this post, and she was collecting the buds to make a, a hand cream out of. So I guess you infused an oil, and I think I think the process was you collected the buds and you soaked them in olive oil for a couple weeks to a couple months, and then eventually you could. You mix it with some other stuff and make like a, a hand salve. Is that the word? Yeah, salve. Um, salve. I don't. I, it's not something I use, so I don't. <laughs> but I'm like, this is kind of cool. My wife has one that has like a lavender scented um, beeswax salve. Okay. So I'm like, oh, this would be really cool. And then I looked up plants. So, oh, there's none of them native around here. But I did find out you can use cottonwood, which is another populus. Populus deltoides. Um, and it's this, native around here, yeah. For this uh, purpose as well, but uh, I'm not sure if it's as good, but you can do it. So Awesome. Yeah, no, it just looked really cool. It's it's a, one of my favorite files on Instagram, and then, like I said, I wasn't familiar with this plant. I'm like, oh, this is a really cool use. When we think about using plants, it's for architecture, it's for uh, the edible or the medicinal yeah. properties, but you don't think about using something even just as simple as to, to keep your hands from drying out and... And um, and cracking. So. That's very cool. You know, and and for listeners that are thinking about populace, maybe for their properties, just keep in mind it's very fast growing, and it's very weak wooded. So it it doesn't live. It's not long lived. Like it can get really big, but it's not long lived, and you'll get a lot of broken branches and yeah. and and things like that. So you don't want to put it like on the corner of your your house <laughs> yep. or your foundation. <laughs> so. That's a great choice, Tom. I, I wouldn't even had thought about that one, so that's a fantastic. Oh, me neither until I saw the, the Instagram post. And it's so if you're new in New England or in the, some of the more northern states across – it's even, I think, native in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but if you're in some of these northern states, that's a plant to look out for 
for you to make something at home and and have it be based off from a native plant. Awesome. Very cool. So my choice uh, for this episode is American Sycamore, which is Platinus occidentalis. You know, at, you see it, it – it's it's popping to me more now than normal mm-hmm. because it is defoliated and you get that exfoliating bark. So yes. when you see that like um, – I don't know what you call what color you consider the the bark, but it underneath it's white, so it yeah. starts peeling and you get big, especially on large mm-hmm. large specimens. Um, and what made me think of it was I was driving down the turnpike and I was noticing it along the turnpike. Mm-hmm. And it's even though it is a native tree, there has been decline in in recent years, probably since like the seventies or eighties, because it is susceptible to anthracnose. So, okay. like the street I grew up on, every house had two. In their front yard, lining the street, mm-hmm. and uh, by the time I was probably twenty five, none were left. Like they had all died off. So um, it's not something you see too often. But the other thing that made me think of it was at Batstow Village, historic village, which was uh, by Wharton or the Wharton School of Business. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, if you think about it, University of Pennsylvania, Stockton University just located a state champion post oak, which is right oh, by yeah. the blacksmith. Yep. And I was thinking – I was just there. If you turn around, there's a row of huge platinus that I actually had just taken pictures mm-hmm. of because of the, the striking white bark. So it's it's exfoliating bark that pops in the winter. Uh, it's a facultative wet species, can get up to 100 feet, uh, a very large eastern hardwood, often forming a massive trunk with exfoliated greenish-brown bark revealing a white inner bark and found on stream banks and floodplains. Um and like I just remember the peeling bark as a kid, like mm-hmm. having them in my front yard. We were all – like as you would be talking to someone or do something in your front yard, you'd just start grabbing like maybe that's why none of yeah. them exist anymore, <laughs> like large swaths of the bark and yep. peeling it off so yep. you could see the white underneath. So yeah. it was very mysterious to me as a kid. And oh, yeah. So it's a, a, it's a really beautiful tree, and that bark is – it's stri- well, striking because it stands out as compared to everything else you're seeing in the – uh, the woods, like Fran said, when the leaves are off the trees and you're driving down the highway, you can see those a couple hundred yards back in the woods. They just really yeah. like glow almost because it, of that bark. It has a very large leaf. If, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the leaf, you will recognize it. And the seed is comes out in balls, and we used to throw them at each yeah. other when yeah. when we were kids. Now, so not like sweet the... gum. It's not like it's round mm-hmm. and and they uh, they kind of like release little flyway. Like seed. Yeah. Now, do you know the difference between a sycamore and a London plain? I don't. It personally, and a London plain platinus ex mm-hmm. uh, uh, acerfolia bloodgood is the most common cultivar. Mm-hmm. To me, I don't think it's as exfoliating, mm-hmm. like personally, and I don't think the bark gets as furrowed when it gets okay. older. Yeah. But I, I'm not positive on that. That's mm-hmm. just my reference. Do you know the difference? No, I, d- oh, I, I thought you were quizzing me. No, no, no. I, I don't know the difference other than that. I remember walking. I, there was a big like alley of of probably London Plain um, up in Newark. And my dad and I go, were going to a devil's hockey game and walking along this alley. And he's like, oh, do you know what that tree is? Like, I, like, like usual back then when I'm 16, 17, I'm like, I have no idea. Why are you asking me this? And, um, and then he's like, well, it could be Sycamore, but it's probably London Plain. And you know, I, I, I was going to say by the mid '80s, most nurseries were producing mm-hmm. for street trees London Plain and not American yeah. Sycamore. Mm-hmm. And and when they're two inch, two and a half, three inch caliper, you're not seeing a lot of the peeling bark yet. Yes, um, yep. in the nursery structure. So I think I I don't know the the exact difference, but 
that's that's what I'm remembering. Mm-hmm. If it's been a while, so if you see a sycamore and it's in the middle of a town or city, it might not be a sycamore. Yeah. It's probably a London. If it's a street tree, it's probably a London plane. That's how I differentiate. If I'm seeing in the middle of the woods, it's probably a sycamore. Honestly, it, at least in our area, I don't know any nursery. For, for street tree purposes that are growing oxidentalis. Mm-hmm. You know, other than a native nursery, I don't know if, if any nursery has oxidentalis in yeah. production. But they, so. in my mind, well, I think a lot of people's mind, they do look really similar. Yes. So, yeah, they do. Yeah, very so cool. very cool. So awesome. Good choice. You so, too. You too. Let's move on to uh, this week's botany-based current events. Of course, we make it a pot competition. This is this or that. You can get with this or you can get with that. So we we do have a winner. Oh, and it was a, a crushing defeat. <laughs> All right, and the, and the winner is Tom won sixteen to eight the I, last I time I looked. It's uh, or actually, sixteen eight, to six, eighteen to six, eighteen to six, eighteen to six. Sorry, you're I was cheating padding. out a couple votes. <laughs> I think those are the votes that left your register and then added up on mine. They were um, jumping ship. Like as even, as you were winning, like people were like, "I'm gonna switch to Tom." <laughs> even though a lot of people couldn't even open my article because I I cho- choose a darn New York Times article and it's behind a paywall. I don't know how I managed to do it because a lot of times I'll open it up and I'll open it up on Facebook and it won't open. Like it'll say you need a registration, so then I'll like open it in my browser and then all of a sudden it'll open. And sometimes if it doesn't, I'll open a reader view and then it'll let me read it. And um, I tend to find a way. There's times I'm like, I really want to read this, and I can't, and I'm not paying any money. Well, well, you want it. And for those of you that that don't remember, um, I had the – oh, actually, I think I have the wrong – I don't think I ever updated it. Yeah, I don't think you updated it. So I had the one about the invasive fish in Texas that they found. That's right. Yep. Um, which I did happen to see. You know, I wasn't the familiar with that. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't familiar with it, but I saw them in an exhibit at the National Aquarium in Baltimore mm-hmm. like shortly after that. Um, and what was your – Mine was on um, peat shortages and thinking alternatives to, to peat That's moss. Right. Even and that was – that. I mean that tied right into what we were talking oh, about. Yeah. So I, I can't – I can't blame everyone for jumping ship on that one. So, but, so you get to choose this week. Would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? Um, I'll go first. I've, right. I tend to like to go second, but I went first the last couple times and I've been winning. So I think you're two in, a, two in a row. At least. Yeah, at, at least, least two in a row. Yeah. All right, so, nice. Um, and this one was something that I saw <laughs> shared by um, by Benjamin Vogt on uh, on Facebook uh, from Scientific American. When I actually went to the Scientific American art- article, I saw it was from a different publication called Knowable. Uh, Noble magazine, which is like a journalist type magazine. Okay. And I was hoping it would actually tie into what we want to talk about because it was very pertinent to me because I had just gotten bitten by a, a deer tick or a black legged tick. And I'm like, ooh, am I going to get Lyme disease? Have, have you ever had Lyme disease? I've never had Lyme disease. All right. I, I contracted it. Ooh. All right. You know, that will be my. Is it my turn for a secret? It is, I th- All right. think. Yeah. And I had something else written down. But okay. I'll share as part of my secret yeah, about when I how I got Lyme disease. So, thankfully, I don't think I have Lyme disease yet. <laughs> but that you this would, was you would know. <laughs> I got well. I only got bit what uh, four days ago. Okay. So, but it's, I think it's a little early. I, and okay, yeah. But uh, we'll see. But the name of the article was Lyme and other tick-borne, tick-borne diseases are on the rise. But why? Uh, it came out at the beginning of February by Ola Chobrick, uh, and. I'll read a little bit of the article, and I'll kind of give some of my thoughts here and there. All right. Awesome. Uh, On a warm spring day, disease ecologist Daniel uh, Salkel is hiking the hills of Coastal Scrub and Chaparral of Marincar County, north of San Francisco, in his favorite spot to collect ticks. 
As he walks, he trails a white flannel blanket attached to a pole, and every 20 meters he stops, scrutinizes the flannel, and picks off any ticks that have latched on. Ticks are passive predators of blood. They wait for an unsuspecting mouse, deer, or person to brush past the blade of grass they're clinging to, and luckily for the scientists who track them, they're easily fooled by by wool fabric. Elsewhere in North America and internationally, blanket-dragging tick biologists like him are uncovering an unsettling trend. Many tick species are expanding their rages, swelling in number, and picking up new pathogens that can deliver disease to people who should should a tick latch on and bite. That's reason to worry because ticks are, uh, I don't know that word, prodigious? I don't know. Uh, prodigious vectors. Um, basically, they bring more types of pathogen over to people uh, from animals than any other creature. So, and they're on the march. In the United States, the annual number of cases of tick or six tick-borne diseases has roughly doubled since 2004, with most of the increase dominated by Lyme disease cases. Uh, ticks come in two main varieties, hard ticks and soft ticks. Um, the hard ticks have visible mouth parts and a hard plate on their back. The soft ticks... Uh, have don't have that hard plate and the mouth parts are underneath of them instead. Um, and, but they're more, um, the hard ticks are the more serious of the vectors. So, uh, there are a hundred species in the family scattered all over the word world and their origins are ancient, probably stretching back more than 150 million years. Uh, ticks are adept at transmitting disease in part because they live a long time compared with other animals like mosquitoes. Um, and the most ticks that carry the disease live two or three years and feed on the blood of multiple hosts across a four-stage life cycle. Uh, so you're from egg, larvae, nymph, and then adult. And that gives them plenty of opportunity to pick up the pathogen and then transi- transmit that pathogen to their host when they bite someone through their saliva. So uh, there's a couple different causes, one of which is increasing temperatures because of climate change. Um, and that's one of the things it does is allow them to speed up their life cycle uh, shortening it from three years to two years, and um, then warmer winters increase the likelihood that those ticks are going to live through the winter versus okay. where they maybe before it got too cold. That's not as much the case anymore in certain areas. Um, this is where the article got really interesting, and this, like I said, I hoped it tied into what our podcast is. Yeah. Um, ticks kind of do because we all like to go outside and worry about getting ticks yeah. because of Lyme disease and other things. But there's a reason that these ticks are are increasing in number, and this is where I think it really ties in. So those scientists debate the details. A historic pattern of deforestation, reforestation, and development in the Northeast seems to have played a key role in the spreading of ticks. During the colonial period in America, settlers felled vast acres of trees in the Northeast to make way for farms. They also hunted white-tailed deer, a major source of blood for uh, blood food for ticks, too near oblivion. Uh, as the deer fell in numbers, so did the ticks. But when the northeastern farms were abandoned in the 1800s, farms in the Midwest Corn Belt, the forest took root again, eventually hosting more deer as well. In 1993 science paper, often uh, still referred or referenced today, researchers pointed to the reforestation as a resultant bound, or rebound of the deer culprits and the rise of ticks and Lyme disease. The authors posted uh, uh, posited that Lyme disease infections probably affected people in uh, the region hundreds of years before, but they didn't know medically what was going on with people, so they weren't able to say, oh, this is what, they had Lyme's disease. Um, they just didn't know. Yeah. So, And then it kind of disappeared with refor- or deforestation, then reappeared. That was the what people thought for a long time. This is me going off on my thing again. Um, that's what people thought for a long, long time. That's kind of what I, not what I thought, but it was the deer numbers going up because of more habitat for deer is why we have more deer ticks and then therefore Lyme's disease. That might not be the case, and that's what a lot of people believe for a long, long time. And basically what ecologists are seeing now, um, I'll read this part. Okay. 
But many colleges now argue that the story behind or the real story behind the increase in ticks and Lyme in the Northeast is even more complicated, that forests got a bad rap. That's because not every animal that a tick feeds off carries uh, Lyme's disease, uh, which is Borreala burgdorferi. Um, so white-footed mice and eastern chipmunks can be Lyme reservoirs capable of harbor, or harborizing the pathogen and passing it on to ticks, but other animals that ticks latch onto, such as rabbits and lizards, don't really harbor that bacteria. Um, and deer aren't reservoirs for that bacteria either. Okay. So the ticks will be on the deer, but they aren't. The deer aren't harboring that bacteria and then giving it back to the ticks. Gotcha. So, uh, so if rejuvenated forests and deer aren't the main driver of the rise of Lyme disease in the Northeast, what is? Oastfield argues that the true culprit is forest fragmentation, building patterns that break up the forest into isolated trunks. Uh, the reason goes like this. Scientists know that white-footed mice are excellent uh, reservoirs. They harbor the bacteria without becoming ill, infect the tick when it bites them, and then they feed the ticks well, helping the tick numbers ride as white-footed mice thrive in these, uh, where these northeastern forests have become patchy. Um, and that's because the smaller these patches are, the few predators there are. So you have a huge surplus of mice that are the reservoirs for, and it's because we're putting in things like, what, housing developments and strip malls and then leaving those little patches of woods. Well, that's not a good place for a hawk to go and hunt or a, ra- a fox to go and hunt. It's too small for yeah. them in a lot of places, but it's a great spot for a mouse. And those white-footed mice are the ones that are carrying that vector and they're actually finding that a lot of people uh, they referenced a place in Staten Island where they were finding 40% of the ticks in people's backyards that where they just backed up to a little strip of trees. Yeah. 40% of the ticks in their backyards carried Lyme's disease. Wow. So you just described my backyard. Yeah. Uh, yeah I kind of did. <laughs> so, um, um, and, and if you're creating more hedge habitat for that, oh, yeah. I, that's why you're seeing an increase in, of deer as well. Exactly. So you, you would think automatically, all right, the deer population is going up. That's why there's more ticks, yeah. but not necessarily. It's yeah, and a lot of people hedge. mistake forests as good habitat for deer um, when really they're edge creatures. They yeah. may go into the forest a little bit, but they don't want to be in deep, dark forests. No. They want to be on the edge because yeah. that's their habitat. Um, they're eating a lot of forbs, and the forbs aren't necessarily in the middle of the forest. And some of that's actually due because the deer don't have other food to eat because there's no nothing on the outside no. of the forest too. But, but if you're creating in. new edge habitat from defragmentation, then that's where you're, the food is. You're activating the seed bank. You have all this mm-hmm. lush new forbs and things coming up, and that's deer heaven, right? Yeah. There, so yep. So it's mice are the the issue, and uh, their call to action at the very end of the article said every day people across the country could help tackle lots of other tick questions uh, by submitting data on ticks they encounter, and then scientists like. Uh, Salkild, the scientist in the beginning of the article, can go out and verify the findings, dragging their tick-catherine blankets along the trails. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, like I said, I just got bit the other day. I didn't, it's, it's was the end of February. I didn't think ticks were really active then, especially on a 30-degree day when I'm walking through a little strip of woods. I wasn't expecting ticks, and right where it bit me, I was I was having trouble keeping, I always tuck my shirt and, and make yeah. sure I'm, like, have... I don't have easy pathways for the ticks to get in. Um, it's just a, a thing of habit. And I was having trouble keeping my shirt tucked in that day. And that's right where it bit me is right where my shirt line was. And I'm like, hmm, okay, well, I know how it got in. But I wasn't <laughs> expecting it for that time of year to have a tick encounter. And then when we identified it as a, a what I call a deer tick, but they in the article they call it black-legged tick, I was All like, right. ooh, this is maybe a little bit more serious. So, 
And just like I said, that article kind of landed in my lap that nice. afternoon. <laughs> and I'm nice. like, okay, oh, well, I guess hopefully I'll read this and it'll tie in really well. But that's <laughs> what we talk about so much is we're getting rid of habitat and uh, and fra- oh, and even more importantly, fragmenting that habitat. And because of that, there's certain predators in this case that can't feed like they need to. They need larger stretches. They can't just sit in a, a patch of five trees, ten trees. 40 trees they need to like they'd have to visit all these different patches to accomplish what they want to do so it's um it's a lot tougher for for those kind of animals which means the prey is able to rise up and in this case means you have more ticks and then they're passing on diseases to humans so oh that's a great article that's a great article i'm glad you found that one uh i am like my article i went not really in a different direction but i i found this one very interesting to me so i hope some other of our listeners find it interesting as well. Uh, but the name of my article is Flourishing Plants Show Warming Antarctica Undergoing Major Change, and this is by Phoebe Weston, and uh, this article is in The Guardian. So uh, as always, I'm going to read a bunch of excerpts from it. It's, a, it's actually a, a pretty large article, um, so please go and read it, and hopefully I, I'm picking some things that give you a really good uh, overview of this article. Antarctica's two native flowering plants are spreading rapidly as temperatures warm, according to the first study to show changes in fragile polar ecosystems have accelerated in the past decade. The increase in plants since 2009 has been greater than the previous 50 years combined, coinciding with rapidly rising air temperatures and the reduction in the number of fur seals, according to researchers working on Sydney Island in South Orkney in the South Orkney Islands. Populations of Antarctic hairgrass, Deschampsia antarctica, and the Antarctic pearlwort, which is Colobanthus quintensis, um, have been studied by scientists on the island since 1960. Research found hairgrass spreads five times faster between 2009 and 2018 than between 1960 and 2009. For pearlwort, the increase was almost 10 times more, according to the paper. Antarctic terrestrial ecosystems respond quickly to these climatic. Uh, climatic inputs, said lead researcher Professor Nicoletta uh, Canone from the University of in Serbia in Como, Italy. I was expecting an increase of these plants, but not of this magnitude. We are receiving multiple evidences that a major change is occurring in Antarctica. The primary driver of change is, is warming summer air, according to the study, which provides one of the longest records of change in vegetation in Antarctica. A secondary reason is the fewer fur seals on the island, which trample on the plants. It is not known why the number of fur seals has declined, but it's likely related to the changes in food availability and sea conditions. Warming trends are expected to continue with more uh, ice-free areas created over the coming decades. Scientists say that the findings from Sydney Island are representative of processes happening in the region more generally. Our findings support the hypothesis that future warming will trigger significant changes in these fragile Antarctic ecosystems, researchers wrote in the paper published in Current Biology. The spread of these species will cause change in the soil acidity, the bacteria and fungi in the soil, and how organic matter decomposes. Changes in soil chemistry as well as degradation of permafrost will cause a cascade of changes with consequences on all components of terrestrial ecosystems, says Canone. The plants are adapted to a very short growing season and are able to photosynthesize in snowy conditions with air temperatures below zero uh, degrees Celsius. Despite being able to reproduce quickly in harsh climate conditions, they are not good at competing with other non-native plants. 
Although warming may benefit some native species in isolation, it's greatly increased the risk of establishment of non-native species that could outcompete native species and trigger irreversible wildlife uh, loss, researchers warn. In 2018, for example, an invasive grass species called Poa Anua, which is often used on golf courses, colonized Sydney Island, uh, Canone said, the, in- the ingression of alien species can induce a dramatic loss in natives native biodiversity of Antarctica, which required millions of years of evolution to survival uh, and survival. Moreover, the vegetation change will imply a domino effect on the whole biota of the terrestrial ecosystems. Dr. Kevin Newsham, a terrestrial ecologist at British Antarctic Survey, who was not involved in the study, said the study shows that further increases in population of these plant species can be expected as Antarctica warms in future decades, leading to a greening of the region, but that uh, that there may also be an increased risk to ecosystem associated with the establishment of alien plant species. So I thought that was a good – that they're using native plants um, as a trigger for climate change mm-hmm. and how it how it means. So just because they're native there as this climate changes, I, I think I kind of look at this in the same way like we know through the Ice Age and things like that that there were – there was different biota that no longer oh, yeah. exists. Yep. So we're looking at another made of major change, and mm-hmm. I just don't know. I always find it interesting, like the things that they knew existed back millions of years ago. If the things we have now existed at the same time, or they like just appeared over time because of different conditions. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if these conditions – it might be native plant – or uh, non-native plant material or exotic plant material or I, I wonder if it will lead to new species that hmm. that maybe we've never seen yeah. before because it's a, creating a new environment that didn't exist in that place recently. Yeah, so, and it's and it's incredibly isolated. So it's yeah. not like you're getting a constant um, flow of, of new species coming in. Uh, that are being introduced. I wonder so. how the Poa Nuis got there in the first place. I wish yeah. they would have yeah. talked about that, but it's someone's boot or something <laughs> like that. Someone so. someone brought a golf club that you know, yeah. <laughs> shoot a yeah. couple balls, yeah. and there you go. That could be. Yeah, I bet you they play some snow golf on yeah. Antarctica. But have you ever read the book Endurance? By the way, I have not. No, it's a uh, it's about um, Admiral Shackleton, uh, and he took it was a. a explorer and he wanted to uh completely cross the <laughs> antarctic continent continent okay and um it was a little bit hard to to read in cases because it basically got stranded they were they sailed down they were going to get off and then go across but um they ended up getting caught in an ice flow and had to abandon ship because the ship got crushed yeah but uh and it's like just that i don't think anyone died they killed their dogs because they had to eat yeah. something because it just makes it seem like there's nothing that's it's just all ice, and I guess yeah. they got trapped in the winter too. But like they had to overwinter there, and uh, yeah. But it's just like it doesn't. You wouldn't think anything grows there. Well, it it's, just was shocking that it made it sound as if there's only two native plants to Antarctica, oh, yeah. and that was it, mm-hmm. which is amazing to me. But they're seeing such an increase, which has got to change. If there were only ever X many, and now all of a sudden it's tenfold, mm-hmm. that yeah, that has to change yeah. soil. Oh yeah, because their, their makeup. growing season was only so long, and now you're if you lengthen that growing season enough, and now okay, there's that much more can has the potential to germinate and grow, and now you have all that detritus at the end of the year. It's gonna yeah, it's gonna change things. Um, yeah. Man, that's 
<laughs> it's a nice little um, case study where you can see things that, like you're because it's an untouched ecosystem. Basically, no one's yeah. going there to yeah. habitat or, or to to create. Yes, you know yeah. to what's the word I'm looking for? To, They're not uh, going to go build a farm or a yeah. house. There. No, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There. It's pretty much left untouched except mm-hmm. for the people that are doing studies. So yeah, uh, you know, which isn't a good day. It's showing that. We're getting climate change, which isn't a good thing, which is changing things. But also it'd be really curious just to see how that ecosystem changes yeah. over time. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully in a good way. It's interesting hopefully. that both both these articles reference climate change as many of what we, we present does. Because um, I I don't know why. It just seems like recently there's been an uptick in people speaking out against climate change again. Yeah. And it's like – I always get drawn back to this cartoon from it's like a cartoon of the climate change conference and it's the guy person's given the presentation and then the 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 uh someone stands up in the crowd and says, What if this is all a hoax and we're making the planet a better place for nothing? <laughs> like, yeah, That's a great one. Yeah. That's a great one. I always think about that. But yeah, it just seems like it's been happening or at least in the circles that I frequent, I'm seeing it happen more often. I don't know. Hey, before I forget, because I had written a note and I kind of moved on, in reference to your article, I had just recently heard a conspiracy theory that there's an island off the coast of Lyme, Connecticut, where they did biological warfare testing Mm -hmm. and that it's not inhabited. But they are saying that's where they feel Lyme's disease was created Mm. and that ticks carried – like they worked with saying if we were to – you know, they worked with ticks mm-hmm. putting on their yeah, – saying if yeah, we yeah. wanted to spread this disease by ticks, like how I've, would it work? And I've it got heard out. that Lyme's disease was something that got out as well. Yeah. I thought you were going to talk like, about the no. conspiracy theory about um, – there's, there's one about the Clintons that I've heard about. Where, oh, like, I haven't heard that one. The Clintons want there to be more wolves so that the wolves will – eat all the the deer and elk and then you won't need guns anymore because the hunting argument goes out the way it's a way to take that they can take <laughs> away all the guns because they need more wolves and then you, there's no reason to hunt anymore i thought that's what you're gonna talk about is <laughs> no. the twins trying to get no. more wolves to get rid of the deer <laughs> now i never heard that one yeah. but now i'm i have to research yeah, that one more <laughs> so um, I'm sorry. What were you? Guys I was going to say the U.S. loves conspiracy theories. They do. Guys, remember that podcast we both listened to, the the Winds of Change. That was one of the lines that really stuck out to me there. And this is more current events related too. That it's like the Americans and the Russians love conspiracy theories more than any other countries. We just everything's got to be conspiracy, uh, conspiracy, and no one ever is like this is just how things are. No, but it's, it's easy for governments to send out information that they want, whether true or not. Mm-hmm. With conspiracy theories, because people love conspiracy theories, oh, so yeah. it's a good way to control the yep. the, the, yep. the masses. Yeah, and so. I just I not to get too off topic. I just listened to a really fantastic podcast the other day talking about how we got to this point in the world with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, and um and saying how Russia really and Ukraine have both like mastered the art of of just putting out so much disinformation that you don't know what to believe anymore and that just pausing saying oh i don't know what's true is enough to for them to to win in their minds it's a hybrid warfare style yeah um and we do it too the yes. us does as oh, well totally. and we did it in this in this instance and it kind of maybe shaped how things have been going yeah. because of what the us did it's yeah it was really it was a 
a Russian war historian who taught at West Point. Oh, very and cool. And it was like, it's all. It's always awesome to hear people who are super, super intelligent and super passionate about what their topics are. No matter how interested I am in that topic, it's like this person really knows what they're talking about and they <laughs> love it. So I'm going to listen to this whole thing. It's not something I was really planning on listening to two hours of, but I did. All right, I'll have to. When yeah. we get off the air, I'll have to get that yep. info from me and check so, it out. So two great articles: uh, Tom's on uh, Lyme disease mm-hmm. and mine on the uh, ecosystem in Antarctica. Make sure you go to the uh, Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group, and uh, we'll have this posted hopefully same day or th- within a day or oh, two. Yeah. Yep. And uh, you can vote because. And of course, the choice is yours. What do you think? Listener shout outs? Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's go into it. Listener, listener shout outs. Shout out. Shout out. So I figure I'll go first. Um, my shout out is to Cindy Wilson, uh, who sent Tom and I a very uh, quick, nice message via email, and uh, I just want to appreciate that she got Tom's uh, juggalone uh, joke. <laughs> yeah, so we yeah. weren't sure. Like for those of you who don't know why we found it so funny, there's a rap group from the the '90s that's still around. They, mm-hmm. they may actually have started in the '80s. Yeah. Um, they're still around called Insane Clown Posse, and their fans are called Juggalos, and that's why Tom was saying Juggalone was <laughs> the, their that, cologne their, line. Their cologne yeah. line. So when we were talking about um, it's a little quick play on words, Juggalone, which is yeah. the the um, what Juggalone, uh, black walnuts, Juggalone's yeah. Nigra secre- uh, secrete that prevent other things from growing underneath of them. So she uh, she got that reference. So did Kelly Gill. Mm-hmm. Uh, she yeah. she reached out to us. So I was hoping that. At least someone would get it. So yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of <laughs> that just lot didn't reach out to us. Maybe didn't quite laugh as hard as we did, but still laughed. Yes. So that's my that's my listener shout out this this episode. And what mine is uh, we got another five star review last week, and um, and it was from uh, Angel four one two, and she was someone who's in the floral industry and just realized how important native plants are and how we need to recreate these environments. And she was really thankful um, for what we were doing and ecstatic. Wrote, I was ecstatic to find the Native Plants Healthy Planet, Planet podcast last fall, uh, the various formats, guest pot, uh, topics, and uh, and us. Are awesome. Make, make it enjoyable. So. And she said we could be kind of funny, too. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. We Thank try. <laughs> I don't think we, we have a career in comedy at no, any point. But no, we have we, our moments. We have a lot of fun at the nursery here, um, and we want, kind of wanted to showcase that as well. It's, it's, again, going back to our style, it was a lot of it's that – some of this stuff can be really technical and scientific, and we want to make it relatable to everybody. Yeah, because that's what's really we can't just have the the really scientific people say, "Oh, we need to to save the planet and plant more native plants." Yeah. We need everybody to do that. Yeah. So it was to bring a little bit of humor to it and make it approachable and and fun and and we're just being ourselves. This is oh, yeah. if you worked with us, this is what you get yeah. all day. So. A lot of inappropriate jokes. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> we do tone it down a little bit. So, but no, we we thank you. And and as Tom mentioned earlier, you know, if you give us a five star review, I think we were doing it up to the hundredth episode. We're going to announce we, it on the hundredth. We're going to announce it on the hundredth episode. Who wins the uh, the Yeti tumbler? Yep. Is it twenty ounce? Twenty Is ounce. Twenty tumbler? ounce. A twenty one. ounce tumbler. So. Uh, Keep sending the five star reviews in. So you got a few more. This is episode ninety five. Ninety five. Yep. So yeah, you got four more, four more episodes. So. One more month, and then we're closing in on that. Wow. Wow. It just keeps getting bigger. All right. So uh, I have no complaints. Uh, none at all. All right. Are you Are you surprised by that? Uh, yes. It's, <laughs> you've, you've 
preloaded the office with all these complaints and you <laughs> don't don't release them on air anymore so <laughs> uh we don't have a question but we do have a comment and i think it's funny because it coincides with our a native plant every day today oh very cool yeah so yeah. i i'm gonna play that for you uh Right now. And when you say today, you actually mean two days ago. Two days ago, yeah. So the one on Wednesday. (laughs) So, (laughs) Hi, guys. This is Jean Burrell calling from New Hope, PA. I'm the one who volunteers at Bowman's Hill. Um, I just had to give some love to the Eastern Red Cedar. I started listening to your new podcast this morning, and I needed to give it some love. The reason Eastern Red Cedar spreads all over is that it's an early successional plant. It's what should be growing when a field is reverting back to woodlands instead of Bradford pears. So if you look like in the woods at Bowman's, you can see that as the hardwoods grow up and shelter it, the plants tend to die off. Um, it spreads everywhere because the birds do eat the seeds. Um, some people estimate that over 90 species of birds eat the, the berries. They're a late winter emergency food often. Um, cedar wax wings are named after eating the waxy berries from eastern red cedar. So it, it's food, it's shelter, it's a frequent nesting site because of the denseness of the branches. It will grow in just about any soil conditions. It makes a good windbreak. It's drought tolerant. It's a nesting site um, because of how dense it is. Or you can usually find lots of birds nesting in it. And lastly, it's a wonderful host plant. I didn't look up the numbers of Lepidoptera it supports, but many cute little butterflies like the juniper hairspray streak use it for a host plant. So it's really a very high wildlife value plant. And the reason it pops up all over is because the birds are eating the seeds. So just wanted to give the red cedar a little love. Have any more questions? Give me a call. I love how I she, that. she started, started yeah. the, the, her message thinking like acting like we wouldn't know who she was. <laughs> yeah, we, Gene, know, we know you. We know who you are. Gene was a, a guest on <laughs> yes, the, she the podcast. Um, and, and you made a lot of really great points. And mm-hmm. we actually talked about that on a native plant every day. It, it is very dense. So a lot of uh, animals use it as screening. Even deer use it as screening. Mm-hmm. And, and exactly, there's besides birds, all the different birds that eat the berries. I, I think it was raccoons and uh, a bevy of wildlife eat the berries as well. Mm-hmm. So if it's popping up everywhere, that's because that seed is getting eaten and carried. So uh, we talked about it being used as a windbreak during the Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's it, it's a very high-value plant. It's it's definitely uh, drought-tolerant. It can be used in a lot of situations. Uh, we're saying moth, moths don't. They It hosts a lot of butterfly, but moths don't necessarily like the smell. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's hence, yeah. hence the, uh, we hate on Eastern Red Cedar a lot here, mostly because of the it's, smell. It's <laughs> but, joking but, though. Yeah, we, we joke around We understand about it. the value And of I it. know from, from talking to some of these folks that are in like the, the Midwest and the South, I guess Southeast and Southwest is it can, where they are, it really can take over and become a monoculture and they're trying to maintain, um, typically like grassland environments. Which is and early successional. Where, okay, we we want to take it that back a step or they want to transition it. Uh, especially the folks that are managing for like um, quail, deer, and turkeys, yeah. they want to have species that are are more beneficial specifically to those game animals. Yeah, so that's why it's the it's a a really hated species for, for some of those <laughs> folks. But around here, I think it's like it's I I really like it. But. I just I just realized I never hit the the intro for the questions. Oh, so you hit it now? 
or, or is no, it too late? It's too late. <laughs> I think right. I missed the opportunity. <laughs> well, I just happened to look down. I was the, like, uh, oh, how about that? You don't have to hit the next intro either because I don't have a grow read a book. Because I'm really I'm shocked at that. Start. Well, I know. I, I said I was postponing the book I was reading, but then I never finished it. I started another book, and I also just bought another book that I'm going to start. So I got to – this is just my personality type yeah. is I'm very good at starting things and never finishing them. So I got to sit down and actually finish this one book so I can present it on here. But I gotcha. Yeah. I thought during my recovery, I would do a lot of uh, reading. I did none. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of binge watching. Yeah. You know, I just wasn't in the mood to focus on yeah. reading, <laughs> but I even got a new pair of like AirPods because I thought I would listen to an audiobook. Mm-hmm. I didn't do any of that. Yeah. No, I've, there's some, fantastic books that i'm going through right now like I, the one that i want to present on is the the nature of oaks by dr doug town yeah. and um like what i say i was on march i think i'm still in march i'm still okay. pretty early in the i'm only like three months in i he didn't start in the beginning of the year i'm only like three or four months in but um i just bought a book called that wild country which is uh by a guy named mark kenyon and he talks about the history of or public lands, like how they came to be, and then some of his interactions with some of these national parks and that kind of thing. Right. So, um, cool. and what was the other one? I read. I started reading a book about Daniel Boone, which was really fascinating too. And then my my hold ran out on my wow. Libby app, so I got. To, I had to go back to the end of the line, and I have two more have weeks until I get it again. But I uh, I brought the Nature Vokes onto the plane so I could read it on my flight to Dallas, and then I couldn't. It was just too cramped. I'm like I'm a bigger guy, so I'm already like encroaching other other people's seats so i'm like i don't want to then read a book and i'm like really spread out so i read Put this other one on my, i kind of like crossed my arms and like perched up like this and read read the one on my phone just kind of paging through <laughs> but we yeah. really pre- gene thank you for calling in we appreciate that and there is an episode of that on a native plant every day so i hopefully you can go for more information on that plant there yeah. to to do that it's already uh it's already been published so we don't have a topic, do we? No, we didn't really plan for that. No, it's and that's okay. I'm yeah. okay with that. But we do have a take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, I thought this is interesting. That the last couple I think we've presented, we really couldn't yeah. take it or leave it because we saw the benefits and the the issues with both mm-hmm. both sides, and it was hard to say yes or no. On this one, I have a feeling this is the the same thing. So my take it or leave it that I propose to you today is ornamental pruning. Oh, I I I leave it. Really? Yeah. I I, I don't. Um. Now, like you said, there's nuance to this. Uh, for most of what I plant, I don't prune it at all. Like, here's my reason. Yeah. Uh, here's my reasoning why I can't necessarily leave it, and I want to say leave it mm-hmm. because. Here at our nursery, because we're a restoration nursery, we do no ornamental pruning mm-hmm. at all. So because these these trees or shrubs are getting put in reforestation type situations yep. or restorations, and, and they're never going to be pruned. And you don't want – what happens is – and we talked about this with white pine. When you shear something or you prune it unnaturally, and then it grows out of it unnaturally because it's in a mm-hmm. – it's, it's, it's being pruned in a way it doesn't want to be. And then it grows out awkwardly and creates other issues down the road. But where I could see taking it is if you're planting a native tree on your property and say you have a split fork low, it's going to fork and it's mm-hmm. got a 
bad crotch and and you know there's going to be breakage you don't want to plant something close to your house and have it fall and break or have it like a really wavy trunk Mm -hmm. where it might cause issues later on yeah um because sometimes some people only have the opportunity to plant one tree or the space to Mm -hmm. plant one tree and they want it to last and enjoy it um you know, so I could see putting a little bit of work into the tree to make sure, hey, I want a, a central leader because I don't want it to break off. I want it to be long-lasting. Um, but like as a practice, I think nurseries over-prune. They, mm, they, yeah. they, they stake to get a, a, a straight trunk. They stake to get a central – prune and stake to get a central leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're really changing the brand. They're taking out bad, bad crotches, bad – uh, like overlapping branches to get a good branching structure. So when mm-hmm. it goes, because most of these are getting put on a street tree, you wouldn't plant something with no ornamental pruning on a tree where it's going to fall and land yeah. on a car or yep. a pedestrian. Yep. So that's where I kind of am conflicted. Yeah, and I guess I don't do it at all. Um, yeah. But some of that's because I don't really plant many trees. That's um, true. Now I have uh, a fruit orchard behind my house that my dad had planted. Um, and I've, I've, I pruned that this year just cause I was like, oh, I'm not really getting much fruit production out of it. And I looked up if you want apples on, a, on an apple tree, um, which <laughs> my wife and I just had a conversation about how I, I call apples frankenfruit cause they're just so, I kind of <laughs> talked about that with a yeah. brewery to book a while yeah, ago. Totally. I was just like completely manipulated and like, and the whole apple a day keeps the doctor away thing is, uh, uh. Uh, marketing ploys to keep yeah, these apple orchards in business, but um, yeah. But I'm like, oh, it's kind of nice to have apples. So I had to go through and one learn how to prune them, and then two actually do it. But that's not a native plant. And same thing with the the ornamental or not ornamental, the fruit bearing cherries behind my house. It's I pruned it for the it didn't its purpose wasn't for naturalization. It was for, for yeah. fruit. Now in the nursery, you know, when your job is to take a plant and bring it to a saleable size and you need it to be as uniform and, and perfect as possible. And well, you have to make that choice. Do I leave it and have it have a, uh, I don't want to call it an error, but like a complication um, where, okay, now it's not going to have the value from a sales perspective. And well, yeah, you got to prune there for sure. And then on top of it, you're, if you're at home, when we're talking trees, um, you want that to like an oak tree is going to live for a hundred, two hundred, yeah. three. Like a white oak can live over three hundred years. Now it's well, well beyond our lifespan. But little things in the beginning of that life, when it's five feet tall, ten feet tall, fifteen feet tall, even twenty feet tall, little things can dramatically alter that lifespan. Yeah, because and so yeah, it might still live a hundred years, but it only lived to a third of its potential lifespan, and. Yeah, should you correct those errors through through pruning? Uh, I guess well, you're, you're you're not going to live to see it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so well, why does it really but matter? Here's here's but, my issue: having my background and the early part of my career was ornamental hort. Mm-hmm. And here's the issue: like if if you've never been exposed to it, here's my issue with it. So, you know, obviously we're not doing ornamental pruning. It's going to go out, create a forest, create a natural mm-hmm. area where it's never going to be pruned. It's never yeah. going to be watered. You want it to be 
healthy and hardened and and ready to go and have and, the genetic diversity and, of yes, that population you're going to have the genetic to, diversity to have be resilient and you're going to over time you're going to lose some mm-hmm. that's that's the and nature that's kind of, of the purpose of it yes. in a way too is that creating that snags, detritus yeah. and that the tree falling over or the the crotch splitting and breaking and now you have one still going up at an angle and the other one is is kind of on the ground well that provides all kinds of habitat and food and forage and and all kinds of and, Places for fungus, it provides. We're trying to naturalize these areas, so it's yes, it, the tree didn't live, but it has its purpose. Yeah, but an ornamental hort, say you grow this perfectly conical prune tree, and then you ship it to a garden center or a wholesale yard, and there the the trunk gets scraped and a big major branch gets mm-hmm. broken on the bottom. You'll hear comments like, "This has no value to me oh, now." Yeah. Like it's worthless to me, which is funny because we're talking about how trees play into the ecosystem mm-hmm. and the the food web and, and their value that way. But it's – in a lot of cases in ornamental hort, their only value is to look pretty mm-hmm. and that's it. So they don't want the leaves eaten. Yep. They want all the, the branches to be – you know, they want it symmetrical. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you're writing credits because people don't value what you just produced because it doesn't look as pretty as another one. Yeah. Which is wrong. <laughs> like that's yeah. that's missing the whole point. I'm thinking of uh now this isn't necessarily pruning, but it's something you just brought up with like the when the bases get a little scratched and damaged. Yeah. It's the same thing. It kind of reduces that tree's lifespan. I'm thinking of the Concord Trail. And it's yeah. something my dad points out every time we ride bikes down there, he's like I don't know who planted those trees for them, but they really should have tried to get their money back because the bases are all like there's Gnarled bark missing. And it's like I was saying before, it really shortens the lifespan of that tree. It's no longer a healthy tree. It's because you're you, making you, it susceptible to insect oh, yeah. or, or disease. So it's it was uh, some oak trees and some maples and some like it's supposed to have some ornamental value. It's supposed to look nice, but they're all native as well. Um, so it's kind of playing both hands. But now you've taken away the ornamental side of it. So you lost because someone mishandled it in the in the either the loading or transport yeah. or planting process. Which is probably being um, like I'm sure they didn't pull a truck back there to where the trees were. They were probably no, no. bouncing around in the yeah. in a bucket of a tractor yeah. all the way down so, being But yeah up. his his point is because it was mishandled, um it's only gonna live for maybe twenty years and it's gonna have like half of it'll be dead for portions of the time. It's not gonna it's not going to flourish. Gonna, yeah, yeah, it's not going to be good where they could have just, if they did it right, it could have been something that's going to be there for 100 years or, yeah. or 80 years or 200 years, whatever the species uh, lifespan is. So, yeah, there's benefits to it. I Generally, I, yeah. I, I leaf it. Generally, yep. I would leaf it. Yeah. But I see that there's, like I was saying, like you can't. You can't put things with bad crotches or that are going to be mm-hmm. short-lived on street trees where yeah. it could damage property or or, or injure someone. Like I, I see those reasons. Now, and, someone who wants to garden native in their yard, what do you recommend they do? You know, I would I would let it go. Like you're going to you're going to want to pick a plant that works for you, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes you may have a, a situation where you're like, I'm really naturalizing this. It doesn't have to be perfect. Or it may be a situation where, like, I need something that's going to be a little but nicer. But would you ask, say you should try and choose something that's more perfect coming out of the garden center? Depends on your situation. It really depends on your situation. You know, for as much as I try not to do ornamental pruning, mm-hmm. like Agatha and I, when we first started dating, she has two uh, high bush blueberries that really had never been pruned. 
and weren't thriving. Mm -hmm. So I did some ornamental pruning just to get them back into shape and get them looking healthy again. And it was a good thing for them. Sometimes it's necessary if you're trying to maintain and keep something on your property to do a little maintenance Mm -hmm. and ornamental pruning to keep it looking nice and healthy for your property. And and you have to use proper pruning techniques Mm -hmm. too, of course. But I think you want to make sure like if, if your only choice is something that's that's crotched at four foot <laughs> and it's yeah. got a really bad angle and you were thinking, you know, something that's going to get 60 foot tall and it's eventually going to cast shade on your house. Maybe not the best. Mm-hmm. Like you might want to buy it, cut, cut one of the, the shoots off, train that one mm-hmm. up, you know, do some work to get it so that it won't be a hazard later down the road um, or m- make a different choice. You know, it's mm-hmm. – at- <laughs> But you don't want to continually do heavy pruning every year, every year, yeah. every like every winter. Yeah. I'm pruning this because I want to keep it perfectly because it's going to grow out eventually and grow out awkward. It's mm-hmm. going to be like an awkward teen, yeah, because yep. it's just not not print. But I would try to keep it as natural as possible and maybe just do a little maintenance to keep it healthy, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just pick the right right tree for the right place. Yeah, you know, it's but in situ- certain situations, I could see why. Why maybe you have to do it? Yep, I can't well, say no. Leave it in general. I'm going to say no. Leave it, <laughs> leave it in general. But, no, I I agree with you. There's there's a time and place, but I think for most of the, I shouldn't say most of the people listening. For me, it, I like it doesn't make any sense to do it. But I have yeah. a big yard, and I have the resources. So it didn't work. I can go get a new one yeah. very very easily. So it's. Yeah. From a, like a point of privilege that I'm able to say that it's um if you like I'm thinking of of well, you get a retail seven gallon tree so something that's yeah. going to be somewhere between like five and eight feet tall you can spend close to a hundred dollars in some cases yeah so not more maybe yeah it's uh yeah it's for for a lot of people that's a big expense and exactly. it's something you're hoping to have for the better part of your life so yeah you you might want something that's a little bit more pruned uh, er, it could be natural but it can't be like we do restoration grade not everything makes it Mm -hmm. like and we produce a pretty high quality plant for what's considered restoration grade but not every plant makes it onto a truck Mm -hmm. there's we get to the point even going "Mm, we can't really send that to a customer because we don't feel comfortable Mm -hmm. comfortable that that's going to survive as it gets older yeah you know so i don't know hey i got since we have a little bit of time Mm -hmm. i thought i'd bring up we had as a comment, and we're probably going to to touch on this on the other podcast as well. But Deborah Rosenthal had commented we on a native plant every day when we talk about what insect issues each native plant has, mm. and we bring up scale a lot. And Deborah asked, "Does scale support the ecosystem or the food web?" And I was like, "Yeah, you know, actually, some wasps feed on scale mm-hmm. and." I think it was like 52 species of bird or 57 species of bird feed on scale. Yeah. So she's like, why is it a bad thing then? If you have scale on a plant mm-hmm. and it's supporting the food web, why are you why are you bad mouthing it? Um, so I thought maybe it would be good that we can talk about this a little bit just to say yeah. this oh, is yeah. why. So it's considered a pest because if it's left unchecked, mm-hmm. even though 52 species of bird eat it, if there's a big infest- infestation of scale – Maybe those birds aren't there or the wasps that feed on it aren't there, mm-hmm. but it can also do enough damage that it could kill your plant or yeah. or weaken it to make it uh, 
open for other diseases mm-hmm. or other pests. Like once a plant is weakened, that's when you start seeing a lot of other diseases take hold. It's it's typically not just one thing. It's it's weak and other mm-hmm. things attack it. So scale, if it's a big enough infestation, you could lose that plant. So even though it's contributing to the food web and the snag of the dead the dead tree will contribute to the food web, do you want to lose the trees or plants overall? Mm-hmm. It's it's a catch twenty two because it's it's doing a natural function, a natural ecosystem yeah. function. Yep. But you could also lose what you're trying to keep also. So yeah. you have to kind of weigh that out. Like mm-hmm. maybe you have 20 of something. You don't care. But, but if the scale are attacking one, it's more than likely they're yeah. going to attack the other ones as it's well. It's kind of – I'm thinking about aphids and, yeah. and milkweed. And you can have a bad aphid infestation that completely destroys your milkweed, and then it's not helping your – what you probably got the milkweed for, and that was to, to help monocaterpillars. caterpillars. Yeah. So, again, like Fran was saying, it's weighing that balance. Yes, the aphids are food for, for all kinds of things. I'm thinking of like the aphid lines that I don't remember what's the larval stage for, but Kelly Gill told me at one point. <laughs> and, um, but they'll eat like all these aphids. And obviously, that's the aphids are super important to that, that larval stage of that insect. But it, I, yeah, I guess it depends. It's like, yeah. well, is, what's, what's more important to you as the, yeah. And that's, you may be that's okay pretty selfish. That. Yeah, but, you may be okay with that. You may yeah. say, "Hey, this is performing. This is the ecosystem performing natural functions. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let that happen." In the nursery perspective, it's what I always think about: is what's more important? Like that, we the the idea of pesticides comes up a lot, and it's is it more important that we are pesticide free because of the impact that we're going to have here on the nursery? Or is it more important that we're able to get as many plants out on the landscape as possible because then they're really serving their function? We could never ship a plant that has scale. Yes. We could never knowingly because then you're introducing something that maybe wasn't Mm -hmm. at a job site uh, with a lot of young plants where maybe they're going to take over and kill everything Mm -hmm. on the the site. You don't don't know. There's There's something that's more susceptible to it. There's all kinds of things that can happen. Yeah, so because a lot of these sites aren't pristine, well-functioning. They're they're being created ecosystems or uh, rehabilitated Mm -hmm. ecosystems. So they're they're not like at full strength a lot of times. So – they may not be able to defend um, an onslaught of scale. So it's it's one of those things like we would never ship it, but if we just let scale hat here, we wouldn't be supplying plants to anyone. We wouldn't be helping the ecosystem by introducing all these great new mm-hmm. native plants. So I don't know. It's one of those things that it, as long as you're aware of it, you can make that choice. You, mm-hmm. you can make the choice like, hey, I, I – these plants are really important and providing more ecosystem function than the scale are providing, and I'm going to choose to eradicate the scale. And that's that's you're okay for doing that, but it's okay for you to also say, hey, you know what? This is prov- it's providing a good ecosystem function. I'm going to yeah. let it go. I'm just thinking like the the big problem I have in my home garden is powdery mildew, and I'm like, I wonder if that has any benefits. But when you Google it, nothing pops. Uh, not that <laughs> I like, know of. I can't say it's kind of this. Um, this uh this there's so much talking about how to get rid of powder powdery mildew that is and it's all like the same information and you can never get through it all actually we had i meant to bring this up in the beginning with our our uh, recap type stuff is we got good feedback on um the the peat substitutes and i made that that i don't want to say claim but i had said that um that perlite and vermiculite didn't have scientifically didn't have much benefit 
and uh, I probably generalize that too much because there is benefits that they have. Yeah. But I guess what I was more trying to say is there's things that can replace that benefit yeah. either uh, more effectively or more uh, cost efficiently. And because um, perlite and vermiculite are both, uh, I believe, are both non-renewable resources. Perlite's something, it's a volcanic rock that's then heated and it it puffs up and vermiculite's kind of the same thing it's not it's a mineral deposit that then they heat it and it puffs up and um but it's it really got me thinking because i'm like oh yeah i i've been told this what happened is i had a conversation with a a science professor um or soil substrate professor and i can't remember if he's from wisconsin or purdue and he's the one who really said oh yeah a lot of people like you can replace this stuff really easily with pine fiber or even just bark and like, cause I realized we never use it, but yeah. a lot of, a lot of the information out there says, Oh, you need to use perlite and vermiculite. And, um, and then from there I had talked to the producer of pit moss and they said, Oh, we had, cause they do a lot of like soilless media blends yeah. that go into garden centers. Uh, cause they were in shark tank and people recognize the brand yeah. and the guy, the salesperson from there says, we only put perlite and vermiculite in our mixes because people will buy, they buy it more because they like it more because it has the little, little white flex. There is no scientific <laughs> benefit to what, why we're putting it in. Yeah. Um, but we've found side by side, people prefer that because it has the little white flex. Wow. And, uh, and then that I talked to someone at garden center, they said the same thing. Oh yeah. Plants that have the perlite in it sell better than plants that don't just because people think that it's, I, a lot of people don't know what it is. They just say that's what it's supposed to look like. So if they it doesn't have it, something's wrong. All right, don't buy into the hype. You don't need it. You don't need <laughs> but, it. But yeah, so that was a, a little bit of the background on that. But then when I looked it up, there was just there's so much out there from just it's not even like cooperative extensions. It's like like websites like I'm trying. I'm making. I'm gonna make some up. Like simply gardening and gardening is life and like all these and they all just have the same regurgitated information. That is like, oh, this is why you need to put perlite in, and it, but it's all the same stuff, and it's very general, and, and like, no one's questioning it, and They're no just, one questioned yeah. it. But there's like, I there's just so much there. I'm like, someone had to do research on this, and eventually, I got some Brian Jackson, Dr. Brian Jackson from North Carolina State, who I referenced in that episode too, articles, and it was talking about wood fiber versus perlite. It's like, yeah, wood, we use this. It was ba- it was wood chips actually, and it's like we had just as good, if not better, results with the wood chips than the perlite. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, it was like almost impossible to find something to back up what what I what I said. There's a call but for yeah. research. We need research. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, that was something I wanted to straighten out too. That I I probably generalized it a little bit more than I should have. Awesome. But we got some good feedback, and I can't remember who sent the email. It was someone from Penn State Master Gardeners. Master Gardeners, yeah. And um, so thank you for doing that because it keeps us sharp too. Because yes. I I don't want to be giving wrong information. Yeah, totally. So, totally. Yeah. So I kind of I, – I guess that's it. I kind of fell a little off my game today, but we're back. Yeah. We're back. It's, it's been, a oh, what, two, three weeks. It's so. been a couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, it'll be sharper next week. Oh. Actually, I, I know I always say it at the end of the episode, our episode next week, we have a guest on that we've been trying to schedule for mm-hmm. over a year. Oh, yeah, well over. Well over a year and a half, and yeah. we're finally – and it, it's someone that we're excited to talk to about the, the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So we're really excited for next week's. 
episode. So make sure you tune in for that. But yeah. that's that's all we got today. All right. So that is it. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Buzz. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. We're saying thank you to RJ Comer for our Buzz theme music, uh, which is called Nightly Suicide. Make sure you stream your by RJ's music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your music. He has a brand new album out that is available on Apple Music and iTunes right now. So make sure you listen. It's good stuff. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Also, uh, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. We have the question and comment line. Thank you, Gene, for calling in. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Uh, ask a question or leave a comment. We're going to play it on a future episode of The Buzz, and we'll answer it to the best of our ability. Or if, if we can't, we'll call a friend and, and get the good answer for you. Um, the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group, we're just about at 900 mm-hmm. members now, and uh, it just keeps adding and great information, and everyone's been so kind. And uh, let's keep that going. Yeah, so you can uh, listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Um well, let's be real. You're probably listening on what Spotify, Stitcher, yeah, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. So if you're there and it's possible, please leave a review. Again, you can win a, a Yeti cup. I'll give you a little shout out. But it means a lot in spreading our message and getting out there so more people hear it. So that's the big reason we like that and we keep asking you to leave a review. Um, if you go to our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplant.com, you'll also find a little banner on the top that you can buy our Native Plants Healthy Plant t-shirts. Uh, there's a bunch of different designs up there. I've had an idea for another design, and I haven't had the time to actually make it yet and put it up, but that there will be something right. new at some point. I didn't, I'm not going to put a date on it because who knows when I'll actually <laughs> do it, but I did have an idea the other day that I want to get working on. But Awesome. And, um, and we don't take any money from that. It all goes to... Uh, the nonprofits that we have on that we we're, we'll hear one that is like, when this is one that really sticks with us and we donate it to them. We don't keep any of that, that cash. So um, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Very and, cool. And and at the beginning of this episode, for any of you that have may have noticed starting last week, you'll hear uh, an advertisement for a podcast called Dear Humans. And, and Eve Bishop, the producer of that and, and narrator, is a listener of ours. Mm-hmm. Give that a listen. I, I believe the episode that's out this week is all about Lyme disease. Really? I, oh, I, I think listen so. That. I listened to episode one, and I was – I was really impressed. I wasn't sure what to, what to think at first because anything related to deer, as a, a hunter who likes yeah. to hunt deer, I'm like, oh, how's this going to go? But it was, it was, I think, very fair and, uh, and balanced. Very well done because she's trying to approach the topic at we can't come to a resolution because mm-hmm. here are all the sides of the argument. Yeah. And she's doing a very good job of laying all that out. And if you get a chance to listen to it, listen to it. She was kind enough. You'll you'll hear an ad for us on there too. So uh, make sure you you – you head on over there. All right. Fran, do you remember the secret you promised us? I, I do. So I got Lyme's disease. I've had it multiple. I guess once you have it, you never get rid of it. You just have it at an acceptable level in your body. But I've had flare-ups on a, on a couple occasions. Mm-hmm. And so the first time I got it was 1992. I was still 21 years old, mm-hmm. and I was landscaping on a property in – in Chestnut Hill, uh, Philadelphia, it's the, actually the property where I mentioned the Kynanthus virginicus, yeah. like a full yeah. run there. And we were on this property for six months. It was such an on-taking. And I remember the, the tree climber burning deer ticks out of his arm because really? he couldn't huh. get them out, and he was taking a cigarette and burning them. 
I've and, read you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. That's <laughs> but that's at the time I remember not knowing what Lyme's disease oh, yeah. even yep. was at this point. So we were working and for a good month I was having issues where um I would get home from work like and I was so sore and I'm like, man, you know, like and I'm at 21, I'm going, I haven't done hard labor in a while. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just not used to it, but I'm so sore, my neck is hurting and I'd come home, shower, eat and sleep. And sleep all the way through to the next day, and I was carpooling with someone, and I would sleep the whole ride home and the whole way mm, wow. in to work. And I remember I was just really exhausted, really sore, really tired. I was having issue with uh, – like my nose was just constantly running like mm-hmm. a lot. Like it was like bright yellow. Yeah. Like, And I'm not thinking that there's anything wrong with me. I'm just thinking that I'm tired. So we're working on one part of the property, and we all have our shirts off. And I'm I'm using a pickaxe, and one of the guys was like, "Dude, you have a rash coming up out of your pants." <laughs> and I was like, "What?" He's like, "Dude, it's huge." So apparently, the tick bite was on my behind, mm-hmm. and the like probably like the middle, and the bullseye had gotten so large that it was protruding out of the top of my pants. Really? Wow. So I mean, it was like the size of a bullseye, and yeah. they were like came over and they were pulling my pants down. And they're like, dude, this looks like Lyme's disease. And I remember going, I don't even know what Lyme's disease is. And they're like, you need to go to the doctor. Yeah. So I went to the doctor, <clears throat> and uh, my doctor had actually never treated a case of Lyme's disease. Interesting. Yeah. So he didn't know what to do. So he wasn't a, a very good doctor. Later on, like a year or two later, I was in a car accident, and I had to go to court over it. And my lawyer had a file – I'm not even kidding. Three inches thick on the doctor that the uh, the the person who was suing me over the mm-hmm. car accident used. He he claimed that the car accident left him impotent. Oh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's quite a turn. This story is yeah. taking. So I remember going. She goes, "Oh, it, it, with the medical claims and the history of malpractice for this doctor, there's no way." He's going to yeah. win. So I was like, what's the doctor's name? And she said it. I'm like, oh, that's that's my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but he gave me a 30-day antibiotic, which I guess I had progressed to the point where they're saying I probably should have been hospitalized mm-hmm. and been on IV. And then he was just like, oh, for pain, just take six Advil. You know, yeah. If you have an oh, issue, gosh. take six, eight Advil yeah. at a time. That was the doctor's advice. So, yeah. And then I ended up having flare-ups over the next two years. Like it mm-hmm. was – I couldn't write – like my name on a check without my arm falling asleep. Really? Like wow. I was having all these neurological yeah. things, and it hasn't bothered me for a while, but that was – I'm well aware of Lyme's yeah. disease now. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen to me because I, I caught the tick. It had burrowed in, but it hadn't been in for more than – I'm assuming hadn't been in for more than 24 hours. Yeah. And they said it's like it has to be in for 36. It has to be engorged. I don't have that – bullseye rash yet which that apparently can get like up like 12 inches yeah the one on me was that big and i actually ended up getting a second one on my thigh interesting uh, that was about the size of a softball Mm -hmm. like the one on my backside was the size of a basketball yeah and the one on my thigh was a a softball so you know but at the time i didn't i didn't know i wasn't aware uh Mm -hmm. now i'm pretty aware so but you'll know you'll see the and you can go get tested i think yeah yeah now they're saying if you catch it early enough I was I was gonna wait and see if I got that rash. So if if I'm not supposed to do that, someone call in and say, "Hey, no, you should once you, you find it, to, you should go to get this checked out." Like, it just so happens I'm just, in between doctors, and I haven't had my first visit with a new doctor yet. They're just it's gonna take a blood test month. and and check. But so. um, 
Yeah, so. Yeah, but that's I'm, my that's my secret. All right. That's, I think that's a good one. That's not too bad. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's pertinent to today's discussion. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. Uh, coming up next week, like I said, we have a very special guest that we're excited to uh, to share with you. And it's a program that's that's been around for a couple years and, and is doing some great work. Some of you may already be aware of it. Some of you may not. So if not, we're happy to introduce you to it. Uh, And we'll see you again next week. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.